Lee Atchison spent seven years at Amazon working in retail, software distribution, and Amazon Web Services. He then moved to New Relic, where he spent eight years scaling the company's internal architecture. Lee has deep expertise in building and managing fast-growing web applications, and he used this knowledge to write Architecting for Scale from O'Reilly. Technical debt is a common problem for engineering teams. Technical debt is additional long-term work required to evolve or maintain an application due to a short-term decision in designing or building that application. Too much technical debt can reduce product innovation and lead to lower employee retention. In this episode, we'll discuss all things technical debt based on Lee's recent article, Technical Debt Will Sink You. Lee, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be here. Yeah, and I should say welcome back to Software Engineering Daily because, you know, this is your your third time on the show, including being on here just a few months ago talking about your book, Architecting for Scale, great book from O'Reilly talking about architecture. So for people that want more background on you, I'd say go check out that episode because there's a lot of, of really great stuff here. But what I want to talk about today is technical debt, you know, which is a, a concept we hear about a lot. And, and, you know, you just wrote a great article about it called Technical Debt Will Sink You. We'll link to that in the show notes. But, you know, talking about what technical debt is, you know, how you get into it and, and some of the problems it's going to cause you. So maybe just at a high level, can you tell us, you know, what is technical debt? Sure. Yeah. So technical debt is an increase in pending work that's required for a system and it's usually as a result of a project choosing an easier solution in the short term instead of a better solution in the long term, a more expensive or more difficult solution. And the resulting work that's left over is technical debt. You either do the job right or do it fast, but we can't do both. That's where technical debt comes in. Sure thing. And when I hear debt, it definitely sounds like a bad thing. But if I think in my personal life, you know, I, I take out debt sometimes. I have a mortgage, you know, I took out student loan debt and things like that. Is technical debt ever good? Like, is there ever a valid reason for that? Or is it is it always something to be avoided? It's absolutely can be valid and useful in certain circumstances. Just like with real debt, you know, if you take out a debt to buy a home, that's often a good thing. But if you end up with too much debt, it can be a very bad thing. And it can really make things not work well for you and your financial future. Same thing's true with technical debt. You can take out a little bit of technical debt and it'll help you, you know, improve time to market, get out, get your product out quicker, do some good things. Your MVPs are, you talk about minimum viable products. That's the creation of technical debt. When you first put out a product and you just want to ship the minimum viable product just to get customer feedback quickly, you end up with a fair amount of technical debt, but it's technical debt that the intent is, you're going to burn off as time goes on. The problem with technical debt comes when you get too much of it. Absolutely. And can you tell me a little bit more, like what sort of problems do you see when a team has too much technical debt in their architecture? Sure. Well, maybe before we get into that, why don't we talk a little bit about the sorts of things that make up technical debt? You know, that I think that'll kind of lead into it a little bit better. But you know, if you think about what makes up technical debt, we often think about, you know, code changes or features that are not implemented or they're implemented in a simplified form and all that sort of stuff. That, those things are all technical debt. It's when you take a shortcut to do something and you don't do the full solution or the right solution or you end up with, you know, a, a product backlog is all technical debt. But it's more than that too. It's also software architectural changes. It's infrastructure architectural changes. You know, decisions like do I want to move to a cloud native architecture? That's not having done that, but needing to do that is technical debt. 
are wanting to move to a service or a microservice architecture and you have a monolith, that's technical debt. You know, moving the containers, you know, even things like adding security firewalls or the need to add more security firewalls or the need to switch to more advanced load balancers. That Those sorts of things are all infrastructure technical debt as well. It also is things that affect people and processes and systems. You know, having the right expertise in your staffing. If you have the wrong people in your organization that have the wrong skill sets, that's also technical debt. If you have the wrong tooling in place to make your customer support work well, that's a form of technical debt. And if you talk beyond just software systems, you know, manufacturing systems, if you often technical debt in manufacturing increases cost of goods sold and you're building a more expensive product because you can get it out quicker and you haven't done the things necessary to reduce the cost. So those things are also all forms of technical debt. And what technical debt does, now getting back to your original question, is what what is the problem with technical debt? It basically, it decreases your ability to innovate. It slows down the processes you use to make changes to your system. You can't move as fast or as agile and make decisions and make switches and, and move in a different direction fast, very fast, if you have a lot of technical debt baggage that's holding you behind. And that's the main reason why technical debt is a problem. You can use technical debt to allow yourself to move faster. You can do a shorter version of a project that that only completes part of the project and increases technical debt in the short term. But that technical debt becomes some baggage for future projects. And if you don't address it, if you let it build up, then it can reduce your ability to make those changes again in the future. Slower to pivot, slower to adapt, slower to execute and innovate on new ideas. Absolutely. And it can really make hiring hard too, you know, or retention generally. Oh, People don't want to you know, yes. work at places where it can't move quickly. It's just firefighting all the time and, and absolutely things like that. So, you know, if I'm an engineering leader and maybe a, a tech leader, an engineering manager, maybe a director, how can I avoid taking on too much technical debt, especially if I have, you know, executives from somewhere or product people pushing hard to say, hey, we need to get this out the door. What are some strategies I can do there? Yeah, the big thing that is in your favor is visibility. The more you can make visible the amount and quantity of technical debt and how it's impacting you in quantifiable manners, the easier it is to make uh, informed decisions at a management layer. Very often, if you have a top-down management structure that is pushing you to make decisions that are maybe going against your technical debt strategy, it's because they don't understand you know, either how much technical debt you have or what the impact of that technical debt is going to do to you now or in the future. If you can put numbers to it and make it very clear that making these shortcuts now is going to have this effect later on, the more you can enumerate that, the more information, the more power that gives you to help the decision makers, if you and the the other decision makers, make the right decisions about whether or not taking on debt is a good thing or a bad thing. It's no different than you know getting a loan for a house. If you already have a lot of debt, you're not going to want to take on a lot more debt in order to get a bigger home, for instance. But if you don't have much debt, it's easier to take on debt to, to buy a home in the first place. And, you know, the 
understanding how much debt you have, how much debt you can afford, and how much debt you can deal with in the future is critical to figuring out whether or not taking out a mortgage now is the right thing to do or not. Exact same thing here. You're taking out a, every time you add technical debt to your application by making shortcuts in a project, you're taking out a mortgage. And as long as you can afford to pay back that mortgage, it's a good use of technical debt. Can't afford to pay it back, or if it builds up and causes problems to in maintaining that debt as time goes on, then that becomes a problem. Absolutely. And if I'm in a point where, you know, I'm getting into that that problem where I'm having trouble paying back some of that technical debt, do you have strategies for paying that down? Is it is it, you know, should I work it in part-wise to my team's workflow? Should I, you know, have a, a stop on other product features and things like that to pay down a chunk of debt? What have you seen been successful in terms of paying down technical debt? Sure. I've seen both of those strategies work where either you put a stop to product development and just work on technical debt if you're talking about an extreme format. More often than not, though, the best way to do it isn't to put a stop to all product development and just work on technical debt. It's to incorporate it into your project workflow. When you're doing a project, there's a net change in technical debt that that goes on with that project. You either add to it or you decrease from it, depending on how much effort you're putting into the project versus how much effort the project needs. And if you just change your ratio a little bit so you work, so you're not contributing significantly to technical debt as time goes on, but are lowering it little by little as time goes on, that's usually a good strategy to get yourself out of a serious backlog or a serious problem. But if you are in a really bad situation, sometimes that's not enough. You just need to put a stop and work through it. The reason why I hesitate doing the stop and just work in technical debt is more often than not, that creates situations where you know, you're going to get behind in other areas, you're, you're losing competitive edge. Usually you're in a situation where you've lost your competitive edge already. You've got so much technical debt, you can't innovate, you can't move forward, you, you're losing your technical edge. You need to do something drastic in order to get yourself out of that situation. And that's the sort of situation when you're in that position, that's where putting a complete stop to work right at the time when you can't afford to stop innovating, you need to stop innovating to get the work done. You'd really are better off trying to catch it earlier than that and to try and get and not let yourself get into that bad of a situation by working on it little by little over time. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And I, I want to look at it also from the alternative perspective. You know, you and I have it from sort of an engineering view of, of making sure we're wanting to manage that technical debt. But what if I'm an executive or, or maybe a product lead who's not too technical? And, and, you know, we've probably worked with engineers that are a little too perfectionistic on, on wanting to get things out perfect before we release it, things like that. You know, as a more non-technical person, how do I balance making progress and, and balancing technical debt you know, from the engineering team that maybe wants to to make it perfect before it gets out. I think, you know, rather than thinking of the details of what actually makes up the technical debt, think of technical debt as a resistor on your ability to be flexible and agile. And so the more technical debt you have, the harder it is for you to pivot, to change, to incorporate to be competitive with other people in your field, with your competitors. So by making a decision to add technical debt now, you're impacting your ability 
to be competitive in the future. And so you need, you need to think of it in terms of value now versus competitiveness in the future and balance those two. And then if you think of it in those terms, you can take the technical aspects all out of it. Just think about those two business aspects, value now, ability to innovate in the future, and balance those two. And that, that might be an easier way to think about it that doesn't require getting into you know, a deep analysis of the, of the technical aspects. Something else to keep in mind is it not only slows you down in your competitiveness against competitors, but it can slow you down in your competitiveness with security threats and threats against bad actors and things like that. You start talking about security aspects. If, you know, bad actors are really nothing different than a competitor that's impact trying to negatively impact you directly versus by taking customers from you. And so if you can't innovate against a competitor, how can you innovate against bad actors that are trying to attack you? And so it can be, you know, the cost of those sorts of things can be very expensive. And, and that's becoming a bigger, bigger problem as time goes on. Wow, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. And you could even extend that out to, you know, outages. Sometimes you make a mistake and, and have an outage in production. And, and if you're architecture is a big ball of mud. It's hard to redeploy, hard to roll back, things like that. That can that can really hurt your your competitiveness there. So that's a great Absolutely. point. Absolutely. So I want to get into specifics a little bit. We've talked in generally, you know, you've previously worked at some large places like HP, you worked at Amazon, both on the retail side and and in AWS, the cloud computing side, and, and then at New Relic. In your last episode on the SE Daily, you mentioned how you joined New Relic when it was only 100 employees. So it's a pretty small place. But it's ingesting this huge amount of data, and, and because of that enormous amount of data it's ingesting, you know, it's having some scaling issues, things like that. So maybe let's just talk about the background there. Were, were those scaling issues, were they technical debt, was a result of poor decisions that, you know, when they were made, or was it just moving into a different level of scaling? It was moving into a different level of scaling. It, when you build your system for a specific size, you make certain assumptions about how things work. And if you are anticipating that you're going to have to scale more as time goes on, yeah, you can think of that as a little bit of a technical debt. I'm making a shorter term decision now that has a lower scaling impact now in the assumption that we'll fix this before we need the additional scale. That can be a technical debt situation. In the case of New Relic, I think it was more a matter of, it was hard to imagine collecting that much data. It was a failure of imagination, I would say, more than anything, that that much data is the amount of data we would be talking about coming into the company at various levels of scaling. And it's like a, when I joined New Relic, it was like every time we met a new milestone, it's like, well, we now have twice as much traffic as Twitter, or five times as much traffic as Twitter. We, you know, it's like you don't imagine those sorts of numbers and imagine what the meaning of that is until you actually see them. And so I think it was more of a failure of imagination of understanding what scale we would be getting to than it really was a an acceptance that we'll deal with this later and take on that technical debt yeah. explicitly. Absolutely. It really is hard to imagine like the scale of the cloud and just the public internet and, and the things that can come online like that overnight. It makes me think of the story when they were building out S3 at Amazon and they wanted to build for some level of scale. I can't remember if it was maybe 10 trillion objects or something like that. And then one of the principal engineers goes up there and adds like two zeros to the end. What would it, you know, what if it's this many objects? And sure enough, they they hit that 
number, I think, much quicker than they expected anyway. When I was in Amazon retail and I was looking to move to AWS, Andy Jassy called me uh, at home. And this, I mean, we were, even Amazon was smaller there. And you don't get calls from Andy Jassy when you're just starting up the company. But <laughs> yeah. so, you know, Andy Jassy called me. And one of the questions I had for him is, you know, this, AWS was brand new and, you know, they had EC2, but no EBS. So there was no persistent storage in the instances. And, you know, so it kind of puts in perspective of what you could do with an instance. It was very limited, but S3 was, of course, around and doing well. But that was about all that was there at AWS at the time. And I asked Andy, you know, he, they were trying to grow this new service offering. So how big do you think AWS is going to get? And I wish I remembered the numbers that he told me, but the numbers he told me, I laughed at because they were unbelievably huge. And I thought, there's no way we're going to be this big. And I didn't say that to him, of course, but that's kind of what I was thinking. And I remember, you know, this was like a year after that, going back and thinking those numbers were just amazingly short-sighted as far as (laughs) how big, you know, things ended up being. And it's amazing looking now, 15 years later, and realizing just how big AWS is. And I don't think anyone can really, really wrap their mind around how big AWS is. The number of objects in S3 was some thousand times the number of particles in the known universe. It was just an amazing, you, you start talking about numbers in terms of number of particles in a known universe. You know you're talking about large numbers here. Yeah. It truly is amazing because you think of all the companies that are architecting for scale on top of AWS, and then AWS has to, of course, handle all of them, handle Amazon.com retail that's built on that, just everything. It's truly amazing the scale they're running at. And, you know, and speaking of architecting for scale, you know, you've written a book on on software architecture called Architecting for Scale. That was the, you know, subject of the last time you were on SE Daily. You know, software architecture, it's a lot of planning up front to make sure it's done right. We really want to avoid technical debt there. One question I have for you is, are there any areas in software architecture where technical debt is is more acceptable or or conversely, like any places where it should really be avoided at, at all costs? Oh, that's a good question. My gut is to say, no, there's no places that are absolute, where there's absolute no need for, you can have absolutely zero technical debt and conversely, where any amount of technical debt is okay. I I don't think there's any absolutes. I think it's all a matter of degrees. And I think there are definitely places where you can tolerate higher amounts of technical debt than in other places. You know, one of the things I talk about, see, I did a presentation trying to think where it was at. It was some conference in Seattle about three years ago where I talked about service tiers. That's one of the concepts I also bring up in my book where I talk about services that you want to specify the criteria for how important it is that the service stays functional and assign a label to it, a tier level, a tier one service, tier two service, all the way down to tier four service. And the idea being uh, you use these labels as ways of prioritizing SLAs, prioritizing efforts, determining amount of work you go into to deal with failures between services, all sorts of things like that. But technical debt is part of that too, right? You, you know, a tier four service can handle a significantly larger amount of technical debt because the problems associated with that service 
going haywire or not performing as well or not innovating as quickly is less critical than for a tier one service. A tier four service being like a a marketing reporting service that re- reports on you know, an email campaign as opposed to a tier one service, which is, you know, an application login capability, which of course nothing works if that doesn't work. And so, you know, there's, so you can apply different rules for how critical technical debt is in each of those, those areas. And then the numbers you would come up with and the acceptableness of what level of technical debt would vary dramatically depending on the criticality of the service. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. As I was sort of thinking about this, you know, two that if I was saying, hey, where do you want to avoid technical debt? Not saying they're absolutes like like you're saying, but hey, data model, you know, especially at AWS scale, you want to make sure the data model underlying your service is, is sound. And then also the public API contract is what I was thinking about because with with AWS, you know, they don't deprecate stuff. They don't turn off services. So that public API is forever, even if it's simple DB or a few, uh, you know, a few services that have been around for a while. Right, right. But on the other side, you know, I was thinking monolith versus microservices. And hey, that's something you want to think about. But, you know, you were involved with big project to move Amazon.com retail from a monolith, break it up into microservices and things like that. So that can absolutely be done. It's not like it's uh, an easy thing, but it can be done down the road if you need to. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting to with the absolutes. You know, you you could also put in, you know, you could say things like security firewalls. You know, you can't accept any technical debt in those areas. But the fact of the matter is you can, because if you don't allow some amount of error bars, if you will, in your design, your architecture, then you only accept perfection. And if you only accept perfection, you never get done. And so there's always, you can build the perfect software and never release it. And that's worse in almost all cases than software that is, you know, not quite perfect, but is performing and doing what you need it to do and has acceptable levels of outages and acceptable levels of problems. And so that's why it was that whole discussion of absolute right and wrong and absolute failure and that makes me think that you know there, some amount of technical debt is always going to be acceptable, but, but certainly there are limits. So I want to switch gears a little bit. And, you know, in the last two years, You've moved from internal roles at companies, you know, like we were saying, HP, Amazon, New Relic, into consulting. You help companies with architecting for scale and, and different things like that. You know, in terms of this technical debt discussion, avoiding reducing that, how is that different coming in as an outside consultant? I mean, is it is it harder to, to change the culture on that or is it easier? You know, maybe you're providing cover for a, a leader that brought you in. What is that difference like, you know, coming in as a consultant? I think the types of consulting I do tend to fall into two different categories. First, there's the company that's, you know, has reached a wall and they need to do something and they don't know what it is. And they'll reach out to me for, for insights. And they're very, usually by the time they, they get to the point where they're bringing in me as an outside consultant, they're very responsive. It's like, we need to do something. We just don't know what, tell us what to do. And, and they'll be very responsive to that. Sometimes you, I get the consulting job where it's a person who has an agenda that wants to show that their ideas are right and they want someone to help back them up with that. And you know, those are harder because usually they're political and, you know, whatever side, you know, you know, whatever answers you come up with when you go in and evaluate more often than not, 
on each side of the political spectrum, there's someone who's just parts that are right and parts that are not right. You know, you have to, you know, the, the reality is somewhere in the middle and, and dealing with the, the politics of getting people on board and negotiating and compromising that sort of thing tends to become more of a problem. Those first ones I find are easier than the second ones, right? Do you try to filter out those second ones or do you, you take them on as they come as well? I take them on as they come. I think sometimes they self-filter. You know, you get a lot of people that reach out to you as a consultant and asking you a lot of questions before they actually hire you. And a lot of the ones that are looking for a specific answer, when they don't get the answers they want, they'll just move on to someone else. And so a lot of them self-filter out, right? Which is fine. You know, it's, I used to, when I first started this, it was like, oh, I lost another one. You know, I, I need to, get, to win more of these. And I realized, no, 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 I'm winning enough. That's all I care about. And the ones I lose are ones I didn't want to have in the first place. So yeah. <laughs> it works out. Yeah, it really is a game changer when you don't have to feel like you have to win every one or feel desperate for that because you can be more selective and get the right ones and get a good fit. And it's just more enjoyable for everyone, I think, in that situation. So Exactly, exactly. You know, related to that, in, in your work as a consultant, you see a lot of different companies and things like that. Are you seeing any particular architecture patterns that are leading to higher amounts of technical debt or, you know, regret in choosing these sorts of things or, or anything like that? By far, the biggest architectural design decision that contributes to most technical debt is a monolith versus service-oriented architectures. Anyone who thinks moving to services is too complex and isn't for me absolutely has to rethink that because the complexity you get from a monolithic application, if not now, eventually, is huge. Almost all cases, those are the ones that have the worst technical debt. As you were leading up to that one, I was worried you were going to say serverless because I did read or I, I saw in your last <laughs> podcast, you were saying that you lean more towards the Kubernetes side over over the serverless side. And, you know, I, I come from more of the serverless world and I, I like serverless. You know, I, I agree it's a totally new set of patterns and I've seen some scary architectures and things like that. But <laughs> I'm glad you didn't go down that road. That <laughs> makes me happy. Yeah. I think we could have another episode on that. It's yeah. like, you know, I think uh, you've probably read some of the things I've written on serverless. I'm, I'm not the greatest fan of serverless. I'm not opposed to it, but I am opposed to people who try and retrofit it everywhere. And I can't tell you the number of times, either as consulting or when I was working at New Relic, and once I had the book done, they brought me on the road to visit customers all over the place. And the number of customers or number of people that would walk up to me and say, Oh, I wanted to meet you. I want to tell you so much. We rewrote this entire application to nothing but serverless. Isn't that great? I, just, uh, I want to just sit there and say, no, <laughs> no, it's not. Well, why did you do that? And why, why did you assume that serverless was going to work for everything? And, you know, it's just, it's a different mindset. But no, absolutely, serverless has lots of value in lots of places, just not everywhere. Yeah, and yeah, make sure you're doing it right and just exactly not retrofitting existing patterns onto it and things like that. So right. for sure. Cool. What other projects you're working on? You're doing the consulting. You know, you've got the two versions of Architecting for Scale now. What else are you working on these days? I'm working on another book with O'Reilly. It's called Cultivating Cloud Outcomes, and that should be coming out later this year. It's a book about complexity and complex systems and complex applications. And then I'm working on another book with a good friend of mine. People who know me may know this person too. It's King Gavronovich. He was the uh, field CTO for New Relic and CPO for a while. 
And he was the CEO of a company called web.com, which was one of the early ISPs back in the early days of the internet. And he and I are good friends and we're writing a book on business operating systems and the business side of building complex systems. And, uh, and that book is, we'll probably end up self-publishing that. When we're done, we may talk to some publishers, but we'll probably end up self-publishing that. And that'll be later this year as well. So besides that, I'm also doing a bunch of LinkedIn learning courses that come out about once a quarter. I get a new course that comes out there. I, of course, have my InfoWorld column. And I'm doing my own podcast and other things like that as well. Awesome. Great to hear. I love your writing. I love the Architecting for Scale book. I think it's great work. So I'll be looking forward to those new books as well. You know, if people want to find more of, of your work, you're mentioning LinkedIn learning, the podcast, things like that. Where can people find you, Lee? Sure. Go to leeatchison.com. That's L-E-E-A-T-C-H-I-S-O-N.com. Perfect. We'll include that in the show notes as well. So Lee Atchison, thanks for joining Software Engineering Daily today. It's great being here. Thank you very much, Alex.